and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about fertilizer placement and timing. If you've got any questions, though, about anything going on in your farm, we'd be happy to visit with you. 844-44-AG-PHD is our phone number. Again, that's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on X, Ag PhD Media, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. Well, I'm excited to talk about fertilizer placement and timing, but Darren's more excited to get to the Ag PhD mailbag, so we're going to start with the mailbag right now. It's the mailbag! All right, uh, first one is is more of a comment than a question, but that's kind of nice to get some comments too. This one comes from OB who says, Hey guys, you're talking about water table management. Just wanted to tell you, thank you for explaining water tables so well. Really appreciate that. You know, that is something, Brian, that I would say a lot of farmers would, would admit. I, I don't really understand that water table management quite as well as I should, that water's always moving under the ground, even though I don't see it. Well, I don't know. I think farmers are pretty sharp. They realize that there's water down below ground that hurts them. It's just to the extent of which you're going to get hurt, that one, it really varies depending on the year. I mean, I look at our own farm. I'm super happy we have tile on the ground, but a lot of people are like, what in the world do you guys need tile for? You get like 15, 20, at most 25 inches of rainfall. I shouldn't even say rainfall. Total annual precip, including the snow. That's not much. What, what do you need tile for? And it's really for spot areas or certain fields that sit low. And when that water table comes up, even if it only comes up for two or three or four weeks out of an entire year, having that tile there really pays well. And our challenge is keeping the water table down early in the spring because if we can't get our roots deep right away, well, then we're not ready to go when the drought hits, which it does most summers. We got to have deep and extensive roots. So, yeah, water table management is unbelievably important. And I'm not saying above ground water management isn't somewhat important. But in my book, water below the ground is more important to manage than water above the ground. All right. Thanks for uh, for that comment, Obi. Uh, this one comes from JB, who wants to talk about BT corn a little bit. Uh, and sometimes, Brian, you make the the correlation between the COVID vaccines using uh, similar technology to to biotech uh, in agriculture. And JB says, "Okay, so talk about these proteins in BT corn. What stops the body from making a lot of proteins that it normally wouldn't make? That's what I'm concerned about with BT corn." Well, yeah, but it's getting the corn to make a protein it wouldn't normally make. It has nothing to do with the body. What well, I mean, the BT corn yeah. making the body. Yeah, so B, are, are we... That BT I, is going to change nothing in your body. You're no. just going to digest right, it you in di- your stomach and that's it. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's... Yeah. The corn isn't making a change to you. It's just a different kind of corn that produces protein, a protein that it wouldn't normally produce. And that protein is indigestible by certain insects. Fortunately, it's very digestible by human beings and most livestock. So not really a problem. Now, if he's saying, okay, the COVID vaccine, how do you stop that from producing other proteins? Well, it is going to produce a protein that then attacks that COVID. Uh, So it's really a scientific discussion here. And 
I mean, I'm not a scientist by trade, but obviously as farmers, we deal with science every single day. And so we, we often try to take complex things in agriculture and get right to the meat of it and just talk about, okay, real simply, this is what happens. So we're not going through every last little thing on how it creates a protein and everything else, but just understand that the COVID vaccine does make it basically gives the body instructions on how to make a new protein that the body wouldn't normally make. And that's the protein that then targets the COVID. So it's kind of like in the corn, and that's usually the comparison we're making, where the corn, I mean, conventional corn doesn't make that protein, while the BT corn does make a protein that targets a specific bug. So anyway, if you got more questions about that, let us know. But I also want to say that, unfortunately, science has become a very political topic, which I think the two are far apart from each other. But we are not making any political statements here about how anybody should believe in this or that or anything else. Don't care. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't care. I'm saying that's not what we're talking about here. We are only talking about the science and you make up your own mind as to whether you think that's good, you don't think it's good for you. And so let's completely separate the political talk. So if you want to give me feedback on the science portion of it, we're more than happy to discuss that, though. All right. Uh, this one comes in uh, from Peachy, who says, all right, guys, I'm up in Canada, and Creeping Charlie is a problem in the yard. We've got some weed killers that are banned up here, and I'm not sure I can use all the products that you normally would recommend on your show for Creeping Charlie. So any ideas for me how I can stop this tough weed? How do we stop it here in the U.S., Darren? Well, here's the thing with Creeping Charlie. We will generally use something like 2,4-D, use it multiple times. So I, my personal favorite is Freelex, the new 2,4-D right. choline. Right. And if you use that in the spring, you maybe use it again if you see a little regrowth in the summer, and then you definitely use it in the fall. Uh, wow. In just a two to three year time period, you can take out this tough, invasive perennial weed. Right. And the point is 2,4-D is not banned in Canada. So you can use the same thing that we're using. Use 2,4-D. It's just you have to use it at a high rate. You can't use it at a low rate. Yeah, and if you can that's get the usually 2, where we see the problem. If you can get the 2,4-D choline, I definitely like that better than the old 2,4-D amine or 2,4-D ester formulations because it just doesn't move around like those do. Now, what I mean by that is when you spray it and it lands on the ground, those old amines and esters can pick up and move with volatilization, where the 2,4-D choline, we just don't see that volatilization issue. So obviously follow the labels uh, and use products accordingly. Yeah. So I'm getting conflicting information. I was, I've been told that two, four, I didn't think two, four, no, two, four D is not banned in Canada, but I see some stuff where maybe it is. Are there areas where it's banned? So anyway, if you're listening right now and you're in Canada, let me know. Is two, four D legal to use on your farm or not? Just send us an email radio at agphd.com. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of fierce herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. 
Do you want to optimize the amount of plant nutrition provided by the microbes in your soil? Source it. Want to replace 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre? Source it. Looking for a more cost-effective way to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI? Source it. Easy to handle, apply, and store. To make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Learn more at sound.ag. Get the most from every acre on your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting several free workshops throughout January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and soybeans, a soils clinic, and a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information and we can't wait to share it with you. Best of all, these events are free, so be sure to check them out. Register today at agphd.com. Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash basic. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Our topic is fertilizer placement and timing. And obviously, this applies to everything that you may grow out there. Getting that fertilizer in the right spot at the right time is critical in order to get high yields, to have the best profitability. Uh, to do the best you can with the environment, and on and on and on. So we're going to talk about that on today's program. We'll also be taking your phone calls at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can just email us, radio at agphd.com. Got our friend Bill Brush out in California on right now. Bill Brush is a consultant, and he'll also be at the upcoming Neil Kinsey seminar that we've got uh, right here at the Morton Center coming up in February. You can check out the details of that at agphd.com. How you doing, Bill? Good. How about you guys? You know, we're doing How's well. The weather treating you. You know, we still have we still have uh, no snow out here, Bill. So we'll we'll save that until you're ready to come up, and then then we'll add some snow for you. <laughs> Yeah, last like last year. Like I, I'm last year. It. <laughs> yeah, that was something. So that anyway, was... well, very much looking forward to to coming out uh, back there again this year and actually imparting hopefully some of the information I've picked up over the years, particularly on water. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a big deal. And you know, when you talk about fertilizer placement and timing, when you've got irrigation and the ability to put fertilizer on at the same time that you're irrigating, that does offer you a lot of extra things where you don't have tire tracks going through the field. It doesn't have to be at the time you're running the planter or running the sprayer through the field, that kind of thing. Uh, talk to us about that a little bit. Is that just kind of how it's done in, in a lot of areas in California? Every time you're irrigating, you have the opportunity to fertilize? Yeah, and it's a lot different uh, depending on what crops. It's almost a given on most tree crops. They've got usually some form of irrigation, and that's the perfect place to inject it. You know, I would say it's really pretty simple as far as placement. You want to put it where the roots are or where the roots will be. And uh, and so if you've got permanent crops, then, then you pretty much have established that, and, and it's almost an all-over-the-field or 
right down the row or wherever your irrigation is going to be. But one of the things that I want to really hone in on is, is, you know, if you're using a seeded crop, you know, uh, anything that you're planting could be any vegetable, could be, uh, you know, coarse corn, soybean, wheat, wheat, anything that's grown on that always, and this is, that's a big word, always, always seems to respond to some phosphate at the starter, as a starter, you know. Uh, and one of the reasons is the sooner that plant can get into phosphate, you know, the better it's going to take off. And uh, and so when you talk about uh, a nice blended, uh, you know, phosphate, potash, and a little bit of nitrogen to get things off on the right foot, uh, if you're fortunate, you can put something together that's got a little bit of sulfur, and you take care of the four main nutrients right out your starter to get that seed uh, basically off to the best start it can can do. Uh, I talk a lot about that phosphate because it's a little bit different. It doesn't really go to the roots. The roots got to grow into it and get to it so it can harvest it and get it into the plant. So the closer we can put it to the seed as is safe is the better. But most of the things we talk about normally would normally use a standard phosphate, like a 103040 or something like that. Uh, it's usually two over and two down, you know up to where the plant is, or seed is located, two inches over, two inches down, is kind of the standard place we put our starters. But there are a lot of new products, these low salt index uh, fertilizers that I've had really good luck on, particularly out here on some corn that we grew up and way up in Northern California, where we literally bathed the seed. You know, put that, put that right ahead and just laid it right on top of the seed just as a row was being closed up and we had phenomenal germination dates you know and out here with it being really hot it's important to get it up and out of the ground so so we had uh, there's, there's some technique to this but it was really good but don't do that with a standard 1034 or you're going to be cussing somebody make sure you have that what we call low salt index which means it's not very harmful or really isn't any harmful to the seed at all so yeah, it's been a big deal finding low salt index fertilizers. Uh, I know for our farm too, we're typically using a low rate of starter. Even where we have good fertility, we've seen a nice little boost, just like your sand bill about getting that crop started. Uh, Bill mentioned that he's going to talk a little about water quality or talk a lot about water quality and, and how to deal with uh, different water sources and those types of things and much more coming up at the, the Neil Kinsey Fertility Seminar in February with us. You can check out the details again at agphd.com. Bill, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the little teaser today and look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, look forward to seeing you guys. Hopefully in a little different weather than we had last year, but <laughs> we will deal with what we get, okay? Sounds Thanks, good. guys. Thanks, Bill. Uh, let's head out to Montana. We've got Clayne Jones on with us right now with Montana State. How you doing, Clayne? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Okay, so Bill, Bill's Bill got the uh, the advantage of having a little warmer climate, of uh, having some lighter soils out there, and, and uh, irrigation uh, available in a lot of areas too. Not necessarily the case for a lot of the guys in Montana. Uh, when you talk about fertilizer placement and timing, what are some of the rules of thumb that work well in your state? You know, there's some overlap with which what he mentioned about I and we we consultants, we professors always recommend phosphorus be placed with the seed. That's just kind of a no brainer based on how immobile 
It is. Um, other immobile nutrients like um, metal micronutrients, we sometimes recommend with the seed, but we often don't see a response. And so a lot of times our metal micronutrients are going on as foliar, where we often see a, a better response. We also really recommend nitrogen on wheat be applied right around flag leaf. And flag leaf, as you know, is a great time. You can measure the nitrogen in the flag leaf, learn whether or not there's sufficient nitrogen in that plant, and nitrogen around that time can really help boost grain protein. You know, it's kind of nice, too, at that point in the season, you've got a pretty good idea what potential is out there. And if you've been getting some rains and things look great, uh, it does allow you that opportunity to, hey, you know what? I, I can actually shoot for the higher end of my normal yield range here and put on a little bit extra at that point, too, rather than. Uh, and, and and the other side, if you've got a really terrible year going on, you can say, you know, I, I'm going to be towards the lower end of my yield window and, and adjust accordingly. So I do like that. And it, it's pretty cheap to do some testing for nitrogen levels at that time of year, too. And, and you can get response back pretty quick as well. Yeah, we have a, a grain protein document that really shows, you know, very nice correlations between flag leaf nitrogen and the odds of a nitrogen response, especially on irrigated and especially on dry land if, if the guys get it on early enough. So that's one of our big recommendations in our dry land fields is you don't want to, you know, wait till a little before heading because it just might not rain after that point. Uh, some people have the impression that a lot of nitrogen goes, you know, into the leaf or through the leaf and gets to the plant that way. But most research, as you know, shows that it actually, you know, falls off the leaf, goes to the soil, and then needs rain to get it down into the root system so that it can be taken up by the crop. Real quick question for you. What do you think about sulfur availability late in the season? Have you seen much difference with that in terms of protein or yield? You know, I have not. I am studying sulfur right now, but not timing. What I do see in research reports and journal articles is that sulfur, even more than a lot of nutrients, seems to be needed very early in the growing season. So, you know, especially on sulfur-needing crops like canola. And so I, what I've seen, at least, is the later that sulfur goes on, the less chance there is for a benefit. And so I really recommend getting that sulfur on at the time of seeding. Yeah, there's, there's just a lot of things that you've got to adjust to, and, and I agree. The sulfur need out there has been one where we've seen growers, like you mentioned canola, and that's a great example of uh, crops that respond well to sulfur and just higher sulfur applications than we've had back in the days when we had more air pollution and those types of things. Hey, Clayne, thank you so much. Yeah. really appreciate having you on, and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you again down the road. No problem. Happy to do it talking about fertilizer placement and timing on today's program and taking your calls and questions too. Stay tuned. The hardworking independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health through awareness, guidance, and action. 
Together, we can uproot the stigma. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. If you look close enough, you can see the hidden potential within your fields. That's why an agro-liquid nutrition plan starts with the crop and identifies the precise combination of primary nutrients while focusing on the support of secondary and micronutrients. So every nutrient is working in harmony for your crop to reach its full potential, maximizing growth while offering lower use rates. Apply less, expect more, precisely. Find an agroliquid dealer at agroliquid.com. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Talking about fertilizer, placement, and timing. If you'd like to discuss how you do things on your farm or if you've got any questions that could help your operation it's 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head out to Maine right now. We've got our friend Alan Perry on with the Farm Technologies Network. How are you doing, Alan? Hey, not bad. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, talking about fertilizer placement and timing, and obviously you get to work with a lot of different crops, and, and the timing on, on each crop may be slightly different. Um, how do you go about assessing this, and, and how do you start formulating plans for growers with different crops? Um, I guess there's a couple of different categories that we look at. First would be liquid versus dry. There's a little bit of difference from those two, and and I'm assuming we're talking about in the soil rather than a foliar, but uh, we do get involved with both of those. Um, and then sometimes there's even an issue where there's rented land or owned land uh, comes into play as to where where and when we spend the money on on something like that. 
Yeah, you're right. There are some good situations there. And, you know, you think about, uh, just take that last example. You had rented ground versus owned ground. I know talking to farmers just all over, if there's a piece of ground they own, they're much more likely to want to build it up if they're renting it. Uh, all depends on how long that contract is and, and how they're handling the the bill for the fertilizer as well, if they're sharing that or if they're they're all on their own on that. Right. We sometimes coach some of our growers on how to write those contracts to make it a little more fair uh, and, and fill a couple holes. Um, I think the, the one fertilizer element that comes to my mind that, that we get involved in a lot is potassium uh, because we have the opportunity sometimes to put that on the fall before the crop. Um, we have a lot more flexibility on when and, and what kind of material we use for that. And that determines a lot of cases the yield of your crop. So potassium's a big issue. You know, when we talk about that, the there's a lot of liquid sources out there too. It seems like the dry sources are, at least in my experience, quite a bit cheaper. But there's quite a difference in some of those dry sources too, in terms of uh, what form that K is going to be in and what else is in that dry pellet. Do you have a preference on potassium? I know you've got a lot of guys that talk about building up their uh, base saturation levels and those types of things. Well. Um, the two primary sources on a dry material would be potassium chloride versus potassium sulfate. Uh, chloride is pound for pound cheaper, but you're only buying one primary ingredient, the potassium. Uh, potassium sulfate, I get sulfur, which I call a fairly major item as well. So if you put some value to the sulfur, then the price looks better. Um, and then we get back to where is our soil sample? Are we filling a hole and trying to get a 2% up to 5% or are we maintaining a field that's been doing well for us? Um, and then with rotation crops, you know, there's some issues there. But um, mostly that and budget is what ends up making the decisions for us. Now, when you're putting K out the fall before the crop, uh, I, I mean, we do that a lot with dry. What about with liquid? With liquid, does that completely change things where you say, no, I'm going to put that on with the crop? Um, the, the first uh, hurdle that we would get through is uh, the difference between what I call feed the soil K and feed the crop K. Uh, if your exchange capacity is below 8, you can't get usually enough K in that soil uh, bank account to feed a big yield crop. So you're looking at some additional applications. Anytime we put K on to feed the soil to get to our soil um, ideal, we could put that on the fall, we could put that on today, we could put it on pretty much when you want to. Um, and sometimes you can buy materials cheaper if you're out of season. So we look at all those things. Um, but if it's a, if you've got your soil filled and it's a feed the crop K, now we want to get back closer to the time we're going to use it uh, because it, we can't really guarantee where it's going to be if you put it, that on in the fall. You know, when you think about that, it, it just brings up the whole topic of which nutrients move well in the soil and which ones don't. We just had Clayne Jones on from Montana State talking about that, that some of the immobile metals, uh, he goes, that's that's a whole little different argument than if you're talking about nitrogen or sulfate. Yes, and not every farm is equally flat. Uh, there's some places in Pennsylvania that don't look a thing like Iowa. So um, as, as your farmers know, various places, gravity and water are going to move things around if they – 
have the opportunity. As for liquids, um, we get some pretty good results with liquids as long as we know, you know, what we're trying to do with it and uh, watch the weather. Uh, equipment labor is a big deal for the farms, and we try to be sensitive to when they have time to do things and, and what kind of equipment it takes to, to get the job done. But uh, a little help from the fertilizer companies is also uh, good for us too, and and we've got some really good ones here in Maine. But uh, um, we need a little help to get the material in the right place. I know that some areas we travel to, liquid fertilizer is really popular. Others, dry fertilizer is really popular. Does it really matter to you? I know you get to work with growers all over. Do you just kind of look at, well, hey, what's available and and what are the price points, and we'll just make decisions from there? Or do you feel like by not having those liquid options in some areas or not having good dry options in other areas that it sets a grower back? Uh we like if my wish would be to have a full set of fertilizers dry and another full set all liquid so i could pick which one i want on a given day if i'm foliar feeding trying to make quick corrections during the growing season i'll lean toward liquid it's usually quicker costs a little more but i'm not using the volume in those cases um but generally these fertilizers are rocks to start with they're dry rocks that are ground up in one form or another and it costs money to make those into a liquid um the guys who like liquids sometimes uh can get their budget in line by not putting on as many pounds but i think that hurts them sometimes in the long run you know when we think about the the foliar options obviously we're talking about liquid fertilizers here uh you mentioned some areas foliars can be used pretty effectively. We're in dryland farming, and often, well, the last three years, we've had some pretty extreme droughts. It's tough to get stuff in with a foliar if you're not catching any rain in our experience. Uh, yeah, and there's some good dry materials that even uh, though it's growing season time work pretty quickly, um, some of the some of the urea products work pretty quickly. Um, we've put on uh, sulfa mag or K mag uh, on a potato crop at 60 days, and could see the difference in three days. Uh, so um, there's enough dew in the air sometimes at night. If it, if you get a temperature difference to cool it off, 10 or 15 degrees at night, you'll pick up some moisture there enough to activate some of these things. So. Um, I'm not in charge of the weather, so we can't always make that happen if we don't have irrigation. But uh, I'd rather have the material out there than not. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean there. Well, there's there's a lot of different ways to look at this and getting fertilizer placement and timing uh, optimized for each crop. And Bill Brush was on earlier, and he said, you know, if you can get fertilizer where the roots are or where the roots are going to be, you got a decent shot of bringing it in, and you definitely need some rain if you're going to make a crop regardless. It is pretty simple if you look at it that way, Alan. Just just get it out there where the plant can pull it in. And and don't forget the microbes. They're your unpaid workforce. If you can get your microbial activity working, they'll go a long ways to go get that copper or zinc or some of those trace minerals that you only need a little bit of. There are certain microbes that specialize in copper, and they will go – the plant can work with them and, and encourage them to go bring more copper. So microbiology is a big uh, factor in this deal, too. Yeah, your unpaid workforce. I like that. Talking about soil microbes and, and soil life. We get a lot of folks talking about soil health and how as they improve soil health, they see a lot better results. Uh, there are so many living things in the soil that are working for us 24-7. It's, it's a good deal. Hey, Alan, thank you so much. Really appreciate talking to you and look forward to talking to you again down the road. 
Okay. Thank you. Talking about fertilizer placement and timing, and if we haven't hit the issue you want to hear, just give us a call at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can always email us as well, radio at agphd.com. Uh, and we've got a few more emails that we want to get through here in a little bit as the Ag PhD mailbag will continue. But coming up right after this break, we're going to talk just a little bit about fertilizer placement and timing and some of the lessons we've learned on our farm as well. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. My mom's got a new Case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Do you want to optimize the amount of plant nutrition provided by the microbes in your soil? Source it. Want to replace 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre? Source it. Looking for a more cost-effective way to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI? Source it. Easy to handle, apply, and store. To make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Learn more at sound.ag. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Planting preparation starts as soon as harvest ends. So do successful at-plant strategies. Put time on your side with at-plant inputs, insights, and innovations that help you make the most of next season's planting pass. You're already thinking about seed, inputs, and crop protection when you plan your season. Include them all in your planter to give yourself an at-plant advantage that pays off at harvest. Always read and follow all label directions Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today just talking about fertilizer placement and timing and answering your calls and questions. 
If you'd like to talk to us about anything going on in your farm, agronomically speaking, love to visit with you. The number is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com if you would like. We will get back to the Ag PhD mailbag just shortly, but I wanted to wrap things up on this fertilizer placement and timing. And obviously we could spend days, weeks, months talking about fertilizer placement and timing. But here's one thing I want you to think about. So when we were growing up on the farm, and granted, this was 70s, 80s, okay, early 70s, early to mid 70s were great, uh, but we were real small. And when we were, like for me, when I was in high school and in college, it was during the 80s. Uh, Those are some of the toughest times ever for farmers here in the United States. But anyway, our dad would often say this. He said, guys, if you ever have a good year on the farm, just spend more money on fertilizer. It's like putting money in the bank. We're trying to build up our soil. And he's right about that, except for one thing. It might be somebody else's bank account. So you're going, if you make your soil better, that's awesome. But the concern is, are you going to be able to extract those dollars someday? Because unlike a bank account where you can take the money out any day, you can't just do that with fertility that you built up in your soil. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't build your soil and you shouldn't do good things for your soil. But what I am saying is, when it comes to this discussion of fertilizer placement and timing, I I do encourage people to think about it at least a little bit different if it's ground you know you're going to farm for the rest of your lifetime and maybe your kids and grandkids are, versus if you have a one-year contract on something and this is it. You're not farming that ground anymore. I'm not saying to rob everything out of that soil. But I am saying, if I'm going to invest dollars in fertilizer, I'd like to get recovery this year. Now, the challenge with that is, can we really put enough fertilizer out there so we can maximize yield and pull it all out this year, or at least what we invested? Um, It may be in a sandy soil you can. In the heavy soils that we deal with in South Dakota, I don't believe you can. What I'm saying is if, let's say I've got ground that's completely depleted, I pick it up on a one-year lease, I'm probably just going to farm it for this year, and I go out and I say, okay, I'm going to ban my fertilizer. I'm going to time the fertilizer application right so it gets taken up by the plant. Uh, We don't have irrigation. We don't have lots of rainfall. There's not much movement around in the soil because it's heavy ground. Um, If I put a crazy amount out, let's say in furrow or really close to the seed, odds are pretty high. I'm going to burn some roots, maybe damage the seed, and maybe hurt my yield. So I got to be careful as far as that goes. If I say, well, you know what? I'm going to do it all foliar. I'm going to go out there every week and spray foliar fertilizer. Well, you'll do okay. Still won't maximize yield. But then you got 18 trips across the field too. So when we look at this thing, we go, all right, if we can, we'd like to have longer term leases on the ground. So at least we can put a little bit extra fertilizer out there. Um, We've also found that when we do band, it does take less fertilizer than when we broadcast, because when we broadcast, the plant roots simply can't find all the fertilizer that we spread out there in year one or maybe even by year five, or year 10. Eventually, they'll find it, (laughs) but it might be a really long time from now. 
The other thing that we have when we broadcast is just more chance for tie-up, at least in the short term, in the soil. So this is part of the reason why we talk often about getting the soil pH balanced, getting all the other nutrients in the soil balanced, having good drainage, having good root growth, all that kind of thing, so we can extract more of those nutrients. But anyway, yeah, it's, it, it's a challenge when you're farming in ground like we are. Non-irrigated, heavy ground, not a lot of rainfall. we got to do things right. And if we run short at all, then the crop starts wasting water in the plant. So what I'm saying is if, let's say, you're short on potassium. Okay, potassium, by the way, is the number one nutrient for corn. The corn crop needs even more potassium than it does nitrogen. We talk all the time about nitrogen, but actually potassium is truly number one. The plant needs way more potassium than it does even nitrogen. Okay, so if your plant starts to run short on potassium, here's what it does. It starts pulling in more water. Even if it doesn't need the water, it's pulling in more water. So in an environment like ours, where it's drier and guys go, well, I can't spend much. I, you know, I don't get a lot of rain and my yield goal isn't high. Believe me, I get that. We deal with the exact same thing. But the challenge with that is if you do cut back and you don't have the right nutrients out there available where the plant can extract them in ample supply, well, your crop starts wasting water. And the reason why it wastes water is because it's trying, it's bringing more water in to try to get more of the nutrient. So if you want to make your crop more drought tolerant, you have to have really good levels of fertility, balanced, ample, in the right place. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that's how you can make your crop as drought tolerant as possible. And we can absolutely see that on our farm. Ground that we've really built up, ground that we build more organic matter, ground that we have great fertility, even in the dry years, we're getting tremendous yields. Our, our best field this year was 274 bushels. It was unbelievable. Now, don't get me wrong. We, ha we also had some not very good fields because we didn't manage it as well. And we had a drought this year. So I'm just saying it can be done. I'm not saying we're, we're perfect on our farm at, at doing everything. But I am saying the more that you can follow that principle of placing it right, timing it right, having stuff ample, and having ample fertility levels and having it balanced with other nutrients, the better chance you have to get through any of those tough times and maximize your productivity in the good times. So, yeah, this is a real challenging thing. And there's no one necessarily right way or wrong way to do it, which is why almost every farmer's got a little different idea compared to the next person. And who knows? Their idea might be great. This year, next year might not be as good. I, yeah, it really depends, but it it varies so much based on your soil type, your rainfall, and the timing of things like temperature and rain and humidity and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot that goes into it. So anyway, very let's let's talk very specifically uh, just in the next couple minutes. Here here are number one. Here are our top recommendations for you. Okay. So number one, we're really going to encourage you to do soil testing and do more soil testing. Whatever it is, do more because you're going to learn. And if nothing else, you're going to get smarter about, well, what does my soil have right now? You need to see what it's got because without that, we're just guessing. And Darren and I are looking at soil tests every single day. And it's great. And I love looking at the data. But unfortunately, we see a lot of incomplete tests. Uh, we see a lot of inconsistencies. We see a lot of variability in fields. And that's really what we're trying to figure out is we want to make the best recommendations for you. Well, the more data we have, the better we can do that.
because if I've got areas that have good levels or let's call it really high levels of certain nutrients, okay, my return on investment there and putting more fertilizer on isn't going to be nearly as high as if I have areas where we're low or areas where we're deficient on just one or two nutrients. Let's try to fix those things, balance things out, get the right amounts out there, and then we're in a lot better shape. And I brought up sand a couple times. In sand, you, you really have to time things a lot better than I do in heavy ground. In heavy, in my heavy ground, the potassium and the phosphorus, I can put it out there now, and it's going to be there 10 years from now if I put enough out there. It's not going anywhere. But in sand, like potassium even, that'll leach. We know nitrate, sulfur, boron will leach very easily in sand. And so that means we have to put, we have to make more applications in lighter soils. And, but, and, so we always grew up on the farm hearing, oh, sand's bad, sand's bad, sand's bad. But um, really, if you have irrigation, I love sand. Sand's amazing because it doesn't take much, and we can change ratios of nutrients in the soil. We can move nutrients through the soil to the roots pretty quickly. So there are a lot of great things about sand if you have irrigation. Anyway, I'll leave you with this. If you have specific questions from your farm, Please send us your soil tests. Send us your specific questions. We'll do everything we can to try to help you. The better job you do with fertility, the more you're going to profit on the farm, the better your crop's going to be, the more fun farming is going to be. We really encourage you to learn more about fertility and soils. But we're going to get back to the Ag PhD Mailbag next. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. 
Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. Join us in Houston for Commodity Classic, America's largest farmer-led, farmer-focused agricultural and educational event, New Frontiers in Agriculture, February 28th through March 2nd, 2024. Houston, we have no problem. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag segment. All right, next question. It's Wade, Southern Indiana. He says, guys, we're making our plans for 2024 soybean prees, and here's what we're leaning towards. Uh, 20 ounces per acre of preview. That would give us 7.5 ounces of metribuzin. That would be dry metribuzin, by the way equivalent, and five and a half ounces of sulfentrazone, that'd be like authority. Uh, then one quart of satellite hydrocap, that's like prowl. Okay. Uh, anyway, he says, this would check the box on all three soybean pre's that you recommend. Our biggest concern here is the high rate of metribuzin. So um, this product is advertised as slow release. Does that help? Does it help safen the metribuzin? And here's the thing. Cation exchange capacity is 6 to 12, organic matter 1.5 to 3, and soil pH 6 to 7. I'm going to read you verbatim. I just pulled up the uh, pulled up the Metribuzin label, exactly what it says. And this is just the straight Metribuzin label, not the preview label, okay? But on straight Metribuzin, it says this. In coarse soils, that'd be sandy loam, loamy sand, they say, with soil organic matter less than 2%, it says, do not use Metribuzin. And I'm in agreement with that. So we, I just, well, just on the show yesterday, I'd answered a question and I said, hey, if your can exchange capacity is below five, uh, forget it. Don't be using Metribuzin. If it's below 10, I'm going to be real cautious. Well, you've got some cation exchange capacity levels below 10. You've got some organic matter levels below two. So we, at, at most, we will typically recommend one-third of a pound ever. Now, granted, two-thirds of a pound is labeled on most soils, but we'll typically only recommend a third of a pound of metribuzin just because we do worry a little about crop injury, and very often what we find is there might be a spot here or there that's a little sandier than you thought or a little higher pH than you thought. So I'd rather be conservative than aggressive with my metribuzin rates. So ultimately what I'm saying is, would I run this higher rate in those light areas? No possible chance. Nope, I wouldn't do it. Now, if you've got heavier ground, so let's say we're in the cation exchange capacity areas of 12. Let's say in one field, it's 12. Organic matter, 3. And the pH is definitely less than 7. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good there. That, that's probably okay. You can, you, you can maybe push the rate of metribuzin if you want, but there's no way that when I'm less than 
10 CEC, I'm going up to a half a pound of metribuzin. My other comment here is you're running a low rate of prowl or pendimethalin, basically a two-thirds rate. And when you cut the rate on trifluralin, on prowl, on sonolent, what ends up happening is you drop the broadleaves faster than you drop the grass control. And I'm assuming, just knowing your area, you're dealing with some tough, small-seeded broadleaf weeds, and that's part of why you want to go to this three-pre-program in the first place. So have we done stuff like this? Sure we have. But I'm just trying to say... I, the metribuzin is too high for a bunch of your soil, and the pendimethalin, you're you're running a lower rate, so you could bump that rate up a little bit. Um, is it enough in that light soil? It probably is. A quart is probably enough in your really light soil, but in your heavier soil, that's where I'd really consider bumping that a little bit. So no, I, I'm sorry, I don't love that combination super well. The preview fits well for heavy soils. That's where we like it, and then. I think that ratio of metribuzin to sulfentrazone is pretty good. But in the light soils, and especially what you're talking about, I just wouldn't do it. All right, next question comes in. Oh, no, it's a drainage question. Uh, it comes in from Darren down in southwest Nebraska. Uh, he said, all right, guys, uh, mostly in irrigated ground, uh, we're, we're thinking about drainage. I uh, hear you talk about it a lot, but we don't get a whole lot of rainfall other than in our irrigated ground where we're making it rain. Uh, but anytime I've ever talked with a farmer about tile, I get a head, head tilt like a confused dog. I get, why would you recommend that here? Uh, I, I want to know how you guys make these recommendations. Do you look at CEC, soil type? Uh, that you think it'd be beneficial in. In most cases, our soils are in pretty good shape, but when I look at the base saturations, I do see higher magnesium uh, than I do calcium. I do see more high magnesium problems compared to high calcium problems. So lowering that magnesium, I may need to flush it out. Uh, can you talk to me about that, how that could work in high and low CECs? What I'm really questioning is his salt level and his sodium level, and we don't have that information, right? No. You okay. can sure send soil tests in to uh, uh, Darren if you want us to take a look further at that. Yes. So if the magnesium's a little high, I'm not that worried about it. Let's just say, for example, the highest we would normally like to see it in lighter ground is 20. 20% magnesium in a base saturation test. Let's say it was 25. Am I that worried about it? Probably not. It's not the end of the world. I'm still going to be okay. Uh, would I eventually like to improve it? Yeah, but... Anyway, send us your soil test and we can see. So we just we don't have a lot of information here specifically. I uh, so if you do have specifics on your soils, send them to us and then we can maybe give you a little bit better answer. But there's one reason why you need drain tile, and that's if your water table comes up into your root zone. So if your water table at any point during the year gets more shallow than three feet or especially two feet, um, I want that top two feet available with air in it all the time so plant roots can grow down. Three feet would be an idealistic view, but at least two feet. I got to have two feet. If I have the water table ever rising into that level, that's when we put tile in. So I don't care about much else. Now, the question is to how much tile you're going to put in, where you're going to put it, those kind of things. Well, the where goes to okay, where does my my water level rise and how much, that 
does depend on cation exchange capacity. So when we say soil type, I don't like using soil type as a guide at all because everybody's definition of sand's a little different. Everybody's definition of loam and silt and all these, it, it, it's too hard. With cation exchange capacity, then we know right away how heavy your soil is. If you tell me 10, I say, yeah, it's pretty light soil. If you tell me it's 30, I go, whoa, okay, that's pretty heavy ground. And the odds are much, much higher that you're going to have water not filtering through properly. And when the water table rises, um, it's just going to hold a tremendous amount of water sitting there in that root zone. So it's, it's a little more problematic. So if, let's just say, for example, you told me, hey, I want to flush out some of this high magnesium. I'm going to put some sulfur out. I'm going to make magnesium sulfate. That's a salt. It's leachable. It'll move down through the soil. I say, okay, I agree with you on all those things, if that's what you want to do. will The, the only real question here is, can it flow down through? So I'd look at not just your top six inches, but what's your subsoil like? How are, how are you at a foot deep, two feet deep, three feet deep? Is your ground still lighter? Is it heavy down there? What is it like? And how much does that water table go up? Because, yeah, if I can flush it down, especially below three feet, I'm feeling pretty pretty awesome. And if I need to put tile in to do that, fine. And the big question of this why, why would you ever put tile in, it really comes back to ultimately we've got to make sure we have a great home for our crop and without air in the soil. It's Everybody talks about water table management, but I want to talk to you about air management. Without air, you are not going to raise the crop you want. You have to have air in that soil and have great soil life moving forward for the microbes and everything else. All right. And again, if you want to send us soil samples, well, we're more than happy to take a look at those too. All right, got this one from CRB. I was listening to uh, SiriusXM. I heard him talking about one brand of drones, and of course, uh, everybody thinks their brand is the best. <laughs> but I find a lot of difference from one uh, brand of drones for application technology versus others. Uh, just curious, have you guys looked into this? Uh, yes, and we have. You may want to have an expert on your show someday to talk more <laughs> about this, as I am interested in it. Yes. Yeah. Um, the technology is changing and it's changing rapidly. Will there be drones or UAVs, as people will call them? Uh, will there be? Will they be out there applying pesticides this year? Absolutely, they will. We may be even trying some on our own farm. We were supposed to do that last year, never got it done. But that is one of the things we're looking at. So, yeah, I, I expect we'll be talking more about that as time moves on. I don't know. Have we had it? Any anybody? Any experts on it? It seems like we've talked drones on the show before. We have a little bit, but we haven't really much. spent a full show on that. Yeah. Uh, in the past. Hey, thanks for the for the comment. We really appreciate that, CRB. And and you're right. There there is a lot of difference out there. So you definitely want to shop around if you're looking at getting into that market. Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.